This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde on the fallacy of free speech. Fashion editor Jess Cartner-Morley talks to Willow Smith about her complicated relationship with the limelight. Film critic Peter Bradshaw reviews the many fictional iterations of the Queen. And finally, writer Nalufa Hadairi on why Kourtney Kardashian's new sustainable fashion line will do far more harm than good. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, as people across the country continue to mourn the Queen's passing, it's not entirely unexpected that a few naysayers might pop out of the woodwork along the way to air their grievances. Vocal antipathy towards any number of things is a cornerstone of the Great British Way, after all. But the police's response to this dissent has taken a worrying turn. And it is this, Marina Hyde observes, that will do far more damage than any heckler can. Read by Vicky Letch. On Monday, police arrested a 22-year-old man in Edinburgh after Prince Andrew was heckled as he walked behind the Queen's coffin. Andrew! The shout was heard. You're a sick old man! Hand on heart, I've heard worse. And if Prince Andrew hasn't, he certainly will. Money and position and expensive lawyers can insulate you from a huge number of consequences in our imperfect world. But if some boy in the streets wants to go full Emperor's New Clothes on you, you might just have to suck it up. Even if it is bad manners in the cirques. Oh, hang on. You don't actually have to. The man, he looks like a boy, was cuffed and later charged. There could be more to it than currently meets the eye, but it is arguably not hugely encouraging that a heckle may be deemed illegal when burglary effectively isn't anymore. Then again, do you remember that this year's Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act increase the minimum term for various serious sexual assaults to four years and the maximum term for assaulting a statue to ten years. If women are going to get sexually assaulted, we should strongly consider doing so while dressed as a living statue of Winston Churchill. 
That way, we can seek the full force of the law as applied to inanimate materials, as opposed to the lesser versions typically offered to female flesh and blood. So yes, the mores and codes of UK society can seem esoteric, but please consult your bumper book of British etiquette for precise guidance on how to behave on all occasions. There is a time and a place for shouting at men who have paid out many millions of dollars to settle sexual assault cases, you will note. And the experts say it's not while they're walking behind their mother's coffin alongside some bereaved siblings who haven't paid out many millions of dollars to settle sexual assault cases. And fair play to the experts. However, a breach of etiquette is not a breach of law. If we started arresting people for not showing decorum, our court system would collapse. Sorry, collapse more. Arguably, vast and vocal antipathy towards even suspected wrong-uns is a cornerstone of the great British way. Come to that, vast and vocal antipathy towards any number of things is a cornerstone of the great British way. Which is why it really ought to be expected that a section of people won't be that crazy about the whole ten days of events mourning the Queen and transferring the crown to her son. And may even decide to make their voices heard publicly about the subject in a variety of ways. In fact, if people feel only one emotion is state-sanctioned, they may feel far more minded to give vent to others. They may be in the minority... You or I may disagree with them, and they may even have ghastly manners. But so what? How their protests are handled by the police tests not just the latter's responsibility with their powers, but our democracy itself. Unfortunately, we are only a few days into the official mourning period, and various tests are being failed. The man in Edinburgh was slammed down onto the pavement by two members of the public who appeared keen to go further. Instead of arresting him for his words, perhaps it would have been better for the police to speak to the two guys who physically floored him. This isolated incident, in police parlance, is not an isolated incident. In Oxford, a man was arrested, then de-arrested for shouting, ''Who elected him?'' at the local proclamation of the new king. In Westminster, a police officer was filmed demanding the details of a man who had held up a blank sheet of paper. The man, a barrister, asked what would have happened if he'd written Not My King on it, at which point the officer requested his details. Because you said you were going to write stuff on it that may offend people around the king. It may offend someone. Hmm, thank you, PC Brains. The idea that the UK is a cradle of free speech is one of those comforting stories the country likes to tell itself. When all manner of things from the libel laws, to teachers being hounded, to the Daily Mail devoting its entire front page to outrage that a comedian mocked Liz Truss, says differently. Clearly, the task of policing London when hundreds of thousands of people are descending on it to pay their respects to the Queen will be complex and sensitive. But quashing public dissent can backfire in ways even those with power cannot foresee. As a 12-year-old, 
Prince Harry was made to walk a very long way behind his mother's coffin at the suggestion of Tony Blair's Downing Street, who thought his presence would serve as a human shield against members of the public who otherwise might feel moved to shout dissenting things at Prince Charles. The plan seemed to work in that very specific and limited way, on that very specific and limited day, yet caused untold damage to the child for many years thereafter. In not unrelated developments, that child went on in due course to cause untold damage to the very monarchy that the original plan was intended to protect. Was it worth it? I rather think not. Then again, heavy-handed stifling of dissent never is. And the sooner the authorities wise up to that one, the better for everyone in our democracy. At the moment, shows of strength simply look like signs of weakness. That was Britain likes to consider itself the cradle of free speech until someone heckles Prince Andrew by Marina Hyde read by Vicky Lech. Next, at 10, the daughter of film stars Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith had enough of fame. Now 21 and with a fifth album out Jess Cartner Morley asked Willow Smith, has she learned to live in the Hollywood spotlight? Read by Evelyn Miller. Eleven years ago, aged just ten and a half, Willow Smith was done with being famous. Off the back of her breakout hit, Whip My Hair, a Rihanna-esque banger that played on repeat across playgrounds and dance floors for weeks, she had landed a prestigious slot supporting Justin Bieber on tour. The whole family flew out for her opening night in Birmingham on the 4th of March 2011. She slayed that night and the next and the next. But when the lights went up at the end of the last European gig, she came off stage and declared, I'm finished, Daddy. I'm ready to go home. Daddy, also known as Will Smith, told her that, no, she wasn't done, because she had signed on for a slew of dates in Australia. End of discussion. Also, he thought, he wrote in his 2021 memoir, until a few mornings later when Willow came skipping into the kitchen for breakfast. Good morning, Daddy, she said joyfully as she bounced to the refrigerator. My jaw nearly dislocated, dislodged and shattered on the kitchen floor. My world-dominating, hair-whipping, future global superstar was totally bald. During the night, Willow had shaved her entire head. My mind raced. How was she going to whip her hair if she didn't have any? Who the hell wants to pay to watch some kid whip their head back and forth? I felt like I had no control, is how Willow remembers the incident today. That was the part that wasn't cool for me. I felt so powerless. But because I was so young, I didn't have enough experience for people to trust my opinions. So I just said, I can't do this. After that came maybe two or three years when I wasn't in the studio. I was just going to school and doing my thing, and that was really nice. But she missed music, which is a huge joy in my life. And I came to realise I love performing and recording. I just wanted to be steering my own ship. 
So, taking the preternatural poise and electric aura that powered Whip My Hair's more than 230 million YouTube views to date, she found her own path. Navigating from pop through pop punk to full-blown rock. Today, she bounces into a London studio fresh from a live set at Reading Festival, which came straight after a summer tour opening for Machine Gun Kelly in the US, and days away from the launch of her fifth studio album. In front of the camera, Willow Smith seems older than her 21 years. She has a face like a cut diamond, with cheekbones that catch the light from every angle as if she is lit by her own personal spotlight. She arrived on set in oversized loungewear and vans, but is unfazed to be handed a fuchsia pink leather Prada trench coat and looks immediately at home in oversized burnt orange Gucci tailoring. She poses with patient concentration, peeling off to roll her own cigarettes in a corner between shots. But when the crew are packing up, and it is just me and her, she seems suddenly younger. She ignores the on-set catering, avocado toast, yoghurt with chopped fruit and organic almonds, in favour of a ham and cheese toasty from Pret-a-Manger, which she eats standing up, leaving the crusts in the packet. Then she changes back into her own tracksuit bottoms and t-shirt, sitting opposite me with her hoodie balled up on her lap like a comfort blanket, bearing an intricately inked arm. I ask her when she got her first tattoo, the seed of life symbol, and she thinks for a minute and says it was about two years ago, when she was 21. This confuses both of us, because she's still 21 now. Yeah, it was on my 21st birthday that I got the first one. Her. That feels like a while ago. I guess life comes at you fast when you are on the global stage. As it happens, Willow is the same age her dad was when the first series of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air taped in 1990, and the resemblance is, for those of us who have strong memories of that show, frankly uncanny. The almond-shaped eyes, affable yet imperious beneath long lashes, have the same heady mix of charm and glamour. But it is the gestures that are most strikingly similar. She has a habit of jutting her chin at the end of each sentence that is precisely that of Will sparring with Geoffrey. There is a bounce to her walk that has exactly the bumptious charm of the fresh prince himself. It took a while for Willow to make peace with her parents for having dismissed her anxiety as tantrums, but she has forgiven them, and both Will and Jada Pinkett-Smith have acknowledged their mistakes. Will writes in his memoir that his parenting philosophy at the time was based on pushing and prodding and cajoling people into the vision I had. But the incident changed his perspective. Earlier this year, on an episode of Red Table Talk, the Facebook Watch chat show Jada hosts with Willow and her own mother, Adrian Banfield Norris, she admitted she had a really difficult time relating to Willow's anxiety because she struggled to see beyond the privileges of her daughter's lifestyle and didn't know what it's like to be a child under hot lights. 
emotional openness is very Generation Z, and Willow Smith is Gen Z to her core. From her tattoos and intricately curated ear piercings to the mononym, Willow, by which she goes as an artist, and the angsty all-cap shout of her new album title, Coping Mechanism. She believes it is important to express negative emotions as well as positive. I can't stay up in that ethereal, celestial, high-vibration, good-vibes place all the time. That's the place we all want to be, and sometimes you've just got to white-knuckle through. But at other times, you need to listen to your emotions, to learn from going into your shadow. Negative emotions can be cathartic. We don't always have the answers, and that's okay. Her mental health is in a much better place than it was a few years ago, she says. As someone who doesn't do well with being overwhelmed, she swears by meditation. Otherwise, I would go crazy. But there is a curious sleight of hand to her generation's predilection for earnest conversations around mental health. Willow prefers to talk about emotions in the abstract, rather than divulge how they might relate to her own lived experience. For all her bravado about living life as an open book, Willow remains coy about the details of her personal life and relationships. In one episode of Red Table Talk, Willow talked about being polyamorous. Polyamory refers to people who have multiple romantic relationships at the same time. But when I ask if she still defines as polyamorous, she deflects the question. There are so many labels these days. The labels go on and on. I think I just like to be a person. I only like one label. Human. That sums it up for me. The more personal my questions, the more opaque her answers. I don't think it's anyone else's responsibility to understand you except yourself she tells me at one point. In March this year, Will Smith derailed the Oscars and his own career in one shocking moment. By slapping Chris Rock in full view of a global television audience. But before that curveball, Will, Jada and their three children had been steadily repositioning themselves from the traditional Hollywood MO of closely guarded privacy to a reality show adjacent openness with the media. In another early episode of Red Table Talk, Jada talked to her mother and daughter about losing her virginity and her addiction to sex toys. Willow responded by revealing that her introduction to sex was obviously walking in on you and daddy. Will wrote in his memoir about watching his own father hit his mother. He confirmed to GQ magazine, in an interview, the long-standing rumours that the couple have not always had a monogamous marriage. There was also a YouTube series, Best Shape of My Life, which ostensibly told the story of Will losing £20 in 20 weeks, but featured confessional moments, including a tear-stained acknowledgement of his failure as a parent to recognise and respect his daughter's mental health. By putting three generations of women front and centre in red table talk, the Smith family have established their own USP as distinct from the Kardashians or the Beckhams, emotionally literate, 
a little left of centre, open to ways of relating that don't fit within patriarchal traditions. Her lesson from Red Table Talk, Willow tells me, has been that everyone will have a different perception on life, and that's okay, and you shouldn't try to change it. To agree to disagree can be a beautiful thing. It is quite the journey from Willow's California childhood, when the family lived a private, isolated life high in the mountains outside LA. There is rich drama in how the cross-currents of the Smith family dynamic intertwine in ways both public and private. Willow and her older brother Jaden's names are spin-offs of Will and Jada, cross-hatching the genders and generations. It is an affectation in the same ilk as the Kardashians' penchant for names beginning with K, but, as befits the Smith brand, a little quirkier. I always knew I was very different from my parents, Willow says. But still, it is striking how the same motifs reverberate through the Smith family history. Hair, for instance, is a recurrent theme. Willow has shaved her head at other monumental moments, including once on stage during a live-streamed performance of last year's album, Lately I Feel Everything. In 2017, Jaden, a rapper, musician and model, chopped off his dreadlocks for a film role and took them to that year's Met Gala, carrying them on the red carpet like a clutch bag and prompting the late Vogue fashion editor, Andre Leontali, to pronounce approvingly, now that is avant-garde. And of course, it was Jada's alopecia that Chris Rock referenced in the joke that prompted her husband to hit him. Willow has made it clear that she does not wish to comment on the Oscars incident. I love my dad, is her response when I bring it up, from which point she retreats into a non-specific sincerity. I pretty much love every person I've ever met, she says. People are just humans, and humans are complex and beautiful creatures who deserve to be creative and to be respected and loved, and yeah, that's pretty much it. But then she looks me in the eye and polishes the silver pendant stamped with their birthdays between her fingers absentmindedly as she tells me that my parents are my best friends. They are both wonderful people. I love them not just because they are my parents, but because they are Will and Jada, who have their own beautiful, complex and amazing minds and hearts. She is close with Jaden too, and with her 29-year-old half-brother Trey, Will Smith's son from his first marriage. At the Smith family dinner table, my dad is definitely the one cracking the jokes, she says. The kids are a little more subdued, a little more chill. My dad is the most hyper of all of us. That's why he's amazing, because he has endless energy. My mum and me and my brothers are a lot more emo and thoughtful about things. Willow's mum is her rock star muse. Jada Pinkett Smith formed the new metal band Wicked Wisdom when Willow and Jaden were two and four years old. Taking both kids along while the band supported Britney Spears on her 2004 tour and played Ozfest the following year. Pinkett Smith once told MTV that she started the band because she would always look at Axl Rose and say, why aren't there any chicks out there doing this now? Willow 
watching Wicked Wisdom from the side of the stage at six or seven years old, heard people screaming slurs at the sight of a black woman rocking out with a guitar. Did she understand what was happening? Willow looks world-weary beyond her years. It's not complicated, even for a kid. You hear it and you think, OK, so they hate my mum because she's a woman, or they hate her because she's black. Her mum handled it like a champ, she remembers. It was crazy, it was intense, but she was so strong and focused. She was a beautiful trailblazer and I will always be in awe of her. Willow has long experience of rubbing up against society's prejudices. There is an infamous 2014 interview in the New York Times with Willow and Jaden, in which she talks about preferring quantum physics and sacred texts to young adult fiction, and how she knows time doesn't exist. And Jaden tells the journalist that you never learn anything in school. It is an uncomfortable read. Is it fair to put a preteen on record in answering questions such as, I'm curious about your experience of time? To Willow, it is another example of the racism she witnessed as a child. I studied physics intimately for three or four years, she says solemnly. What threw people for a loop was that we were black kids being expressive. Society doesn't see black children in that way, and it was shocking for people. Claiming space in the rock world is a political act, Willow says, which is about stepping into places where marginalised communities haven't been accepted and saying, I'm human and I'm allowed here too. One of my favourite musicians, Sister Rosetta Tharp, was playing rock with an electric guitar in the 1940s. Blues was the birthplace of rock, but that history was put out of sight for social and political reasons. There are still many people who don't want people of colour, women, people of the LGBTQ plus community to rise and know their history. All of us should be allowed freedom to express ourselves in all kinds of different ways, and one of those ways is rock music. Music is not just music, it is also activism. Throughout history, music has driven some of the most intense shifts in humanity's thought processes. She name-checks Nina Simone's 1964 song Mississippi Goddamn, which became an anthem of the civil rights movement. That song illuminated the culture in such a powerful way. Is she enjoying the rock star lifestyle? She weighs the question for a moment and gives a more equivocal response than you might expect from a hot young artist with the world at her feet. Um, yes. But, you know, it's a process. It's a journey. Sometimes it's rough, but that's what makes life beautiful. I ask about her home life when she's not recording or performing, and she softens. I live alone with a few cats and a few dogs. I'm like an old lady. I love hiking with my dogs. Being quiet. She doesn't cook. Pasta for the win every time, because that's pretty much it. But reads a lot. On her bedside table right now... 1984. One day, she says, she might check out of celebrity altogether. Someday I want to go to college, she says. I heard about a guy who had a PhD in jazz guitar. I thought that was really cool. A PhD would be the coolest thing ever, definitely. I love physics and astronomy. 
She is beginning to seem restless, to fidget like a teenager wanting to get down from the dinner table. We say our goodbyes and she slopes off to find her tobacco. At some point in my life, I guess I might just disappear, she says. But not yet. That was I Always Knew I Was Very Different From My Parents, Willow Smith on Anxiety, Activism and Family Ties by Jess Cartner-Morley, read by Evelyn Miller. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online. But one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm showing Tyler, and this is... Can I tell you a secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, wise, witty, patient, crisp, Faintly martyred or skydiving with James Bond, our film critic Peter Bradshaw looks at how cinema portrayed the monarch and recalls the night she put him on the spot at Windsor Castle. Read by Vicky Lech. Only very recently did the Queen make her screen breakthrough. Like British Shakespearean stage veterans who suddenly find themselves in a huge movie franchise late in life, 
the monarch found herself knocking it out of the park with a superstarring role in the 2012 London Olympics, opposite Daniel Craig's 007. And Craig looked almost paralysed by his co-star's prestige, walking stiffly down the palace corridor alongside her and the corgis, with an odd pursed-lipped expression, perhaps unsure of how or if to signal his own awareness of the comic craziness underlying this unprecedented event. With her Olympic walk-on, the Queen had astonished, thrilled and even slightly shocked some of her audience, who perhaps feared she might be embarrassed or demeaned if it all somehow went wrong. They needn't have worried. She sailed through it. And at the Platinum Jubilee in February, when she played herself opposite another Brit cinema franchise icon, Paddington Bear, she was even more relaxed, gleefully producing the marmalade sandwich from her handbag and cheerfully tapping out the rhythm to Queen's We Will Rock You on her teacup. But these cheeky cameos came at the very end of her long life, when the idea of impudent showbiz Les Majestie had just about been phased out and the Queen was allowed to be, and perhaps expected to be, more of a good sport. In parallel with this, there has been a veritable parade of actors playing the Queen on Netflix The Crown, with Claire Foy, Olivia Colman and Imelda Staunton playing the late monarch at various ages. These are sustained, intimate impersonations that would have been unthinkable until very recently and still partly account for the BBC's reluctance to produce the show. It wasn't just about the budget. But before that, there weren't too many major dramatisations of HM, not compared with a legend such as, say, Winston Churchill, who has been portrayed countless times on screens big and small. Having said this, the Queen was always a cinema figure in that she was forever shaking hands with beaming stars at royal command performances throughout her epic reign. There is virtually no Hollywood movie star who has not performed with her in the Odeon Leicester Square receiving line, a scene endlessly remade with new supporting casts over the years. A genre of silent light comedy in which the Queen says something innocuous to the star who laughs delightedly at a line that was evidently mildly roguish and flirtatious. What was it? The Queen's performance remained sphinx-like and zelig-esque over decades. But the monarch's absence from movies had a social as well as a dramatic dimension. In some senses, her ubiquity somehow preempted the novelty necessary for any true-life biopic, however respectful. She was on local news bulletins year-round, cutting ribbons and meeting beaming dignitaries, and on national TV every year for the Christmas broadcast, whose unworldly formality was increasingly adored as the Queen became grandmother to the nation. This over-familiarity, combined with residual deference, meant a movie was hardly guaranteed to go down well. Moreover, 
Movie producers were probably disconcerted by the mysterious and essential inactivity of the Queen. She was the still centre of the turning circle of national and international events. The Queen didn't do anything. Her subjects did the dramatic heroism. All this contributed to the long-standing taboo or convention that playing the Queen was in bad taste even sacrilegious to our unwritten quasi-constitution. But above all this, the Queen didn't need to be shown in a movie. She was already in a movie. The monarch was already the star of that giant, phantasmagorical 24-7 fantasia of her own remarkable situation. So many people have had a dream about the Queen and so many reports that actually meeting the Queen was very dreamlike. Certainly, it was very dreamlike for me when I met her at a BAFTA event in 2013. Like everyone else, I reported to Windsor Castle that evening, squeaking with self-aware excitement. How bored the Queen must have been with this kind of semi-satirical delirium in people she met. I had been strictly instructed, you never talk to her before she talks to you, and it's your majesty the first time, ma'am thereafter, to rhyme with Pam. Don't get flustered and call her Pam. I found myself in a group with a queen that included Minnie Driver, who handled the situation brilliantly, and an executive from Warner Brothers, who had not got the memo about not starting conversations. What's your favourite horror film, Your Majesty? he said. A tiny silence descended. The Queen asked me crisply, her eyes boring into mine. What's the name of that horror film that begins with a G? Various courtiers and functionaries turned expectantly to me, looking like the giant playing cards from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The silence extended. The room was melting. I couldn't think of a single word beginning with a G. Eventually, I said, Is it the Grinch, Your Majesty? Yes, said the Queen, beaming, the Grinch. The Queen has appeared in documentaries, of course, such as 1953's A Queen is Crowned, written by Christopher Fry and sonorously narrated by Laurence Olivier a film that pretty well established the template for live TV coverage of all royal events thereafter. And she herself greenlit the BBC's 1969 documentary Royal Family, which showed her in what was for the time a remarkably intimate way, but which the royals themselves appeared to have second thoughts about as it was not repeated, finally surfacing on YouTube. But the first really substantial fiction feature movie dramatisation came in 2006 with Stephen Frears' The Queen, written by Peter Morgan, who went on to write The Crown. Tellingly, the film was about the Queen being challenged to come into the modern world of mass media after Diana's death and explain herself. Helen Mirren's portrayal was a treat, evidently trying her hardest to make HM everything her supporters hoped she would be in private. Wise, witty, patient, crisp, and faintly martyred, though uncomplainingly so, by all the hard work she's doing. 
She was taller and younger than the actual Queen and less posh, the word off becoming off only once. Like Prunella Scales in the Alan Bennett TV play A Question of Attribution in 1991, the actor playing the Queen has to make her a shrewd, droll critic of the modern world as it unfolds in front of her. But not too droll, not too showy. Is that what the Queen was really like? Who knows? Samantha Bond played the Queen in the Larky 2018 TV movie The Queen and I, based on the Sue Townsend novel about the monarch being dethroned by Republican governments. Amusing though Townsend's fantasy is, there is perhaps a kind of dereliction of imaginative duty in simply putting the Queen in a hugely bizarre counterfactual situation. It looks like panto-spitting image, not cinema. The challenge is to engage with the real life. When Stella Gonnett subtly played her in Pablo Loran's 2021 film Spencer with Kristen Stewart as the deeply unhappy Diana, spending her last Christmas at Sandringham before her marriage finally collapsed, she was in an interesting situation. The Queen she was playing had to be somehow central to the entire situation and yet also peripheral. Either way, she is almost invisible. The star of that drama is, of course, Diana, whom the movie puts into all sorts of surreal and hallucinatory situations in which there is naturally no room for the stuffy old queen. When this story was dramatised in The Crown, Coleman's queen had a much more direct role. In a way, filmmakers might have felt more emboldened to tackle the queen in her younger pre-queen self, the Canadian actor Sarah Gaddon gave a great performance as Princess Elizabeth in 2015's A Royal Night Out, an entertaining what-if fantasy about what she and Princess Margaret might have got up to on VE Nights 1945 when they were allowed out of the palace to mingle incognito with the revellers. I wrote a novel about this escapade in 2013 entitled Night of Triumph which tackled the same fundamental difficulty. How do you put the Queen in a quasi-romantic situation? Imagining the meet-cute with Prince Philip would feel impertinent, that constitutional forelock tugging again. But imagining a freeze-on with someone else would be ungallant and a creative misstep. So I imagined Princess Elizabeth as a good, matured innocent, exploited by a seedy, spivvy gangster... The movie, meanwhile, gave Princess Elizabeth a very sweet, platonic encounter. A Royal Night Out is a spirited and attractive account of the Queen as a young woman, although, like every other film, it was hemmed in by this constitutional, existential difficulty. The Queen was never free to do exactly what she might have wanted to do. She did not have the freedom to be a protagonist, although the VE night adventure was arguably the closest she ever got. The real Queen is an enigma that movies have never entirely addressed. Perhaps in future years she will inspire a more irreverent, more mould-breaking, more secular performance like Kate Blanchett's portrayal of Elizabeth I or Frances McDormand's Fern in Nomadland. 
A movie about the Queen might be a more experimental, low-budget, non-Netflix account of the years of her widowhood, or her experiences in wartime, or her relationship with her mother, or, the most painful of all, her relationship with her favourite son, Andrew. Elizabeth II is a riddle the cinema has yet to solve. Her great moment on the big screen has yet to arrive. That was Lights, Camera, Corgis. How Movies Tackled the Enigma That Was Elizabeth II by Peter Bradshaw. Read by Vicky Lech. Finally, Kourtney Kardashian has just launched a new sustainable clothing line with famously unsustainable fashion brand Boohoo. Welcome to the fashion influencer to landfill pipeline, says Nalufa, her diary, where greenwashing abounds and nothing of meaning is said. Read by Evelyn Miller. Good news for people who like being lied to and wearing clothes that smell of petrochemicals. Boohoo, a UK-based online fast fashion brand that has grown quickly in the US, has announced that they will be partnering with Kourtney Kardashian to embark on a sustainability journey. The destination is unclear, but the journey will involve 46 limited-edition pieces of clothing made from recycled fibres, traceable cotton, recycled sequins and recycled polyester, as well as transparent practices for shoppers who want to learn more about the apparel. Although still a small fish in the US fast fashion market, Boohoo is a fast fashion behemoth in the UK, which means that their clothes are made from cheap, environmentally damaging materials, and that their workers in Pakistan are paid as little as 33 cents an hour to work in unsafe conditions. The result of this tried and tested exploitation method is an average of more than 700 different poorly made items being uploaded to their website every week, ready for the consumer to add to basket for a quick burst of serotonin and a new outfit to upload to Instagram on the weekend. Following over $1 billion of sales in the first financial quarter of 2021, Boohoo has aggressive plans for US expansion, with the Kardashian capsule collection, which will be launched at New York Fashion Week, the centrepiece of their US launch. In July, the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, announced that Boohoo was under investigation over greenwashing, the practice of using inaccuracy or exaggeration in branding something as sustainable or environmentally sound. Of particular scrutiny is their ready for the future line, which vaguely claims that items in this line are made of more than 20% of more sustainable materials, an essentially meaningless assertion made with little to no proof. Kardashian, the eldest sister of reality TV's first family, has spent the last few years crafting a fashion-forward and health-obsessed personal brand, going vegan, cutting out coffee in favour of matcha, removing sugar from the lives of her children, to ridiculous effect in an episode of Keeping Up With The Kardashians where she tried to ban candy from a Candyland-themed children's birthday party. 
Her content meets commerce lifestyle platform Poosh, the modern guide to living your best life, offers healthy and quick lunchtime recipes from Kardashian herself, all natural hangover cures, skincare recommendations, and a tour of supermodel sister Kendall Jenner's high-vibe bedroom sitting area. In the official press release, Kardashian herself admitted to some trepidation on the collaboration. When Boohoo first approached me with this idea that was all about sustainability and style, I was concerned about the effects of the fast fashion industry on our planet, she said, briefly sparking a glimmer of hope. Unfortunately, she continued, it's been an enlightening experience speaking directly with industry experts. There's still lots of work to be done and improvements to be made, but I truly believe that any progress we can make when it comes to sustainability is a step in the right direction and will open up the conversation for future advancements. Something tells me that the enlightenment she experienced was linked to a paycheck and the Kardashian inability to turn down a lucrative opportunity. It's unclear how sustainable any of the pieces in the upcoming collection, which ranges in price from $6 to $100, actually are. The official press release includes absurdist statements such as 41 out of 45 contain pieces that contain recycled fibres like recycles, sick, cotton, with no information about what percentage of the materials are recycled. Boohoo did not respond to repeated requests for clarification. Although the collection promises to be traceable, only two items are made with cotton from Cotton Connect, an agricultural project that promotes sustainable cotton farming practices with specific farms. Boohoo says it is making 12 of the pieces in the UK, including our own British factory. But conditions in Boohoo's factories were so bad that many believe they amounted to modern slavery, and the US threatened an import ban unless changes were made. More than two years on, over half of workers say they are being paid less than minimum wage and receive no holiday pay. Even if Kardashian's range turns out to be as sustainable as Stella McCartney, her collection makes up less than 0.1% of the clothes available on Boohoo. Her endorsement, however, will help the whole company, including the 99.9% of their far less sustainable clothing. It seems that most of the heavy lifting, sustainability-wise, will actually be done by the Social Content series that's being released alongside the collection which sees footage of Kardashian talking to a variety of glossy experts about how fast fashion is killing the planet, before merrily heading off to co-sign some more of it being made. Central to the influencer-to-landfill pipeline is a false illusion of egalitarianism, with fast fashion framed as an accessible way for everyday people to embody the aspirational lifestyles of people like Kardashian, who let's be real, would probably rather die than actually wear the cheap swill they are flogging for any longer than the time it takes to make a contractually required post. Fans of fast fashion justify their continued patronage of these stores with claims that they simply cannot afford anything else. 
But there is no reason why anyone needs to be spending hundreds of dollars on new clothes every month. Anyone who says a company like Boohoo can create sustainable clothing is lying. Fast fashion retailers from Shein and its lead-filled $1 sunglasses to Zara and their $50 polyester cardigans are predicated on a system of always wanting more that is at odds with the environment. What's challenging is figuring out how people can still live in this way, where it's simple and easy and fast and fun, but it doesn't have a negative impact on people and the planet. Muses Patrick Duffy, founder of Global Fashion Exchange, in the accompanying video of The Journey. A spoiler alert for everyone, you can't. The only truly sustainable thing that Boohoo and its fast fashion brethren can do is immediately shut down operation. That was Courtney Kardashian wants to make Boohoo's fast fashion sustainable. Spoiler alert, she can't. By Nalufa Hadari. Read by Evelyn Miller. You've probably heard the advert for our new six-part podcast series, Can I Tell You a Secret? It's great, and all six parts will be available to listen next Friday, the 23rd of September. So subscribe now to Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to, and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Vicky Lech and Evelyn Miller and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.